You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition to help you boost your cognition. My name is Eric, and if you are new to the podcast, then please take a second and consider subscribing. It's really easy to do. Just hit that big red, typically red subscribe button, whether it's in your phone, if you're listening on whatever podcast player, or if you're watching this on YouTube, you're going to love what you hear here. So make sure that you subscribe so you can stay up to date to all the podcast episodes that we release. Also, if you do enjoy what you were hearing on this podcast, then head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave the podcast a five-star review. Those ratings certainly help us climb the old rankings algorithm in Apple, Google, and all that good stuff. And if you are someone who is interested in getting only the highest quality supplements in nootropics in your body, then head on over to holisticnootropics.com and download a copy of my free supplement buying guide. This is a fully comprehensive guide that will walk you through ingredient by ingredient on how to find the best quality stuff on the market. Because as some of you probably know, there is a lot of junk being sold on the market today. The supplement industry is a $100 billion industry and probably about 99.9 billion of it is flushed right down the toilet. doesn't get absorbed by the body. It's loaded with all kinds of fillers and preservatives and stuff that really take away the bioavailability of the compound that you're trying to get. Oh, and by the way, many of the supplements that are on the market today don't even have when tested the nutrient that you are trying to get in the first place. And lucky for you, we're going to be talking a lot about supplements today. So this supplement uh, topic is certainly pertinent. So again, head on over to holisticnootropics.com and download that free buying guide. Okay. Let me bring in our guest today. This is going to be a good one, folks. Buckle up, get your notepads out, take some notes because you are going to want to probably listen to this a few times because there is a lot of good info here for you. My guest today is Dr. Stasha Gomanak. Dr. Gomanak grew up in California and attended medical school at Baylor University College of Medicine, where she received an MD degree. Her neurology residency was done at the Harvard-affiliated Mass General Hospital in Baston, and then practiced neurology in San Francisco Bay Area until moving back to Texas with her husband. Starting in 2004, she began to dedicate more of her practice to the treatment of sleep and sleep disorders. In 2012 and 2016, she published two pivotal articles about the global struggle with worsening sleep, the possible causes and solutions related uh, solutions related to vitamin D deficiency and the intestinal microbiome. In 2016, she retired from her office practice to have more time to teach. She currently divides her time between right sleep, a coaching, um, a her company coaching sessions for private individuals and teaching other clinicians the right sleep method of sleep repair, which of course is something that we could all use more of in our life. Dr. Gomanak, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics podcast. Hi, Eric. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this is going to be great. I am so pumped to talk to you today. Um, I have been catching up with your work and you have such an amazing perspective on these compounds, these vitamins, these nutrients that people are just, in my opinion, kind of haphazardly taking or really kind of confused on the right way to take. Um, and I'm especially interested in your background with, um, with, with sleep coaching, because this is, uh, I'm so shocked at how much of a hot topic sleep is today. And I didn't realize there was a sleep epidemic until I started listening to you, but there really is. And you don't think about it until you hear it and you realize, oh yeah, I'm not sleeping right. 
right? Uh, most everyone I know is not sleeping, right? Um, so I want to get into all that with you. But first, um, take me through a little bit of your journey, you know, why you got out of private practice and why you're, you know, kind of pursuing the, like, what turns you on to actually wanting to help people specifically with sleep? I fell into it by accident. Um, I had half of my neurology practice and daily headache sufferers who are in the majority young, healthy females, some males, some teenagers. Um, and many of those women, the only medical uh, issue, and it's not really a medical issue, is that they've had a couple of kids. So if you've recently had a baby, you will have be sleep deprived by having that baby in the house. And the wife is usually uh, even more sleep deprived because the baby sucks up her vitamin D and ruins her microbiome because her D isn't high enough. So we're gonna get into that in a while, but it turns out in retrospect, the patients who I started sending for sleep studies were young, healthy females who had very little wrong with them, but they didn't sleep and they didn't feel good. Their three complaints are usually, I can't remember anything. I'm in a bad mood all the time and I can't stay asleep. So, and insomnia is an, is an area that's completely ignored. I mean, we just, we, we shame people. We say, no, you can't take those medicines, but we haven't figured out why they can't sleep. So one of my daily headache sufferers demanded a sleep study. She turned out to have sleep apnea and she put on a CPAP mask. I knew nothing about it at the time. I, you know, what we were being told, this was around uh, 2005, is uh, fat middle-aged males get sleep apnea. Well, she had sleep apnea, she put on a CPAP mask and in about three weeks, her headaches went away. And that was completely challenged my whole idea of migraine. So headaches are chemical to me, they have very specific genetic um, predisposition with a certain channel disorder. I'm all about biochemistry. I couldn't figure how wearing this torture mask would, would make her headaches better. And ultimately, the other important piece was she didn't have any drops in oxygen. So we had been handed an explanation really by the pulmonologists. And it's logical that they were called, okay? So the, the first sleep apneas as a, a larger group are post-op cardiac bypass sitting in the, in the recovery area and stop breathing when they're both upright. You wouldn't call the neurologist then. You call the pulmonologist because they're the ones that make the little machines that blow air out. Know? And that's over 20 years, 30 years ago now. So we were still taught that it was somebody who looked like that man. Now we don't think it's weird to say, oh, young, fit people can have sleep apnea. And actually, this is an ep epidemic that's grown in the last 40 years. And it's important to note that when I was in medical school, we did not have courses in sleep apnea, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, irritable bowel. These are from the older physician standpoint, these are all relatively new epidemics. And they also don't have very good explanations for why they should all be there. So my patient got better with a CPAP mask because most people who have daily headaches and I've been doing daily headache for 25 years. I know all the medicines. I also know they don't work that well. They, if, they, if you find something that works as a prevention, frequently two or three years later, they're back and it's worn off. So we don't have a good understanding of daily headache and we don't have a good treatment. That means the daily headache sufferers will, will cooperate with almost anything. I mean, they're miserable. So I started to send all of them for sleep studies. And over a period of time, 
I was quite confused by the fact that most of them didn't have any apnea. So not only did the first gal not have severe apnea, so she didn't have drops in oxygen. And as I was about to say, what we've been handed was drops in oxygen mean a change in the brain. That's what causes the diseases. It stresses out the brain. Well, my gal didn't have drops in oxygen. None of my other patients had drops in oxygen. And most of them did not breathing. So then I have a report that says, oh, no significant apnea. But she looks otherwise the same. So then I'm confused by that. And it takes actually a year, year and a half before my pulmonologist says, well, I don't know if you noticed this, but your patients are a really different population than the usual patients we're doing sleep studies on. And they have a pretty unique finding. They don't have enough rapid eye movement sleep. They have delayed rapid eye movement sleep and they have REM-related apnea. And I said, well, Chuck, that's not on the report. And he says, yeah, I know. I was like, what? You know, I'm, I'm trying to puzzle through this person's sleep is normal, but she, you know, so their sleep is not normal, but it's not being reported because nobody knows why they won't have REM. So as soon as I come in as a patient and I say, hey, I'm so glad you're back because your sleep study shows you have no rapid eye movement sleep. What would you say? You'd say, hey, cool, there's something wrong with me. Fix me. And I don't have a clue. And no one's writing about it. You know, I'm about to write an article about connecting sleep disorders to migraine. So I'm reading all the literature around the world about sleep disorders. And this is a global pandemic. You know, and that's 2005, six, seven, every place they're putting sleep studies centers, they have all of their sleep studies are abnormal. And if you count the ones that they don't say, oh, there's no RAM, there's no deep sleep, it's very interrupted RAM, all they're referring to on the first page is apnea or no apnea. That means we're under-reporting and we have no explanation so stepping back a minute, what we've also been told is this is an airway problem. This is the tube through which you breathe through. That makes sense because the pulmonologists know about oxygen, the tube you breathe through, the lungs. So they come up with an explanation, but their explanation doesn't fit for my patients because it's not an airway problem. They just don't get into REM sleep. So the next question is, well, I'm a neurologist. I should know how they get into REM sleep. This is happening in the brain. It's not happening in the airway. So, and at the time, what I'm stuck with is, if you have apnea, I can give you a CPAP device. And because so many of my patients, now I'm starting to do sleep studies on everybody. You know, when I meet a stroke person on the weekend, I do a sleep study. When somebody has uh, tremor, I do a sleep study. I'm starting to generalize the idea that if something like migraine, that's a genetic disorder, that is episodic and comes in no apparent way. Like if I've had this gene for migraine, why didn't I get it until I was 32? Many of the neurologic disorders are just like that. If I have a genetic tendency towards tremor and it's true my grandfather had it, how come I didn't have it until I was 52? What else is going on? So in today's parlance, I would be, what's the epigenetics surrounding that? And as soon as I start to see people, I realize that everybody I do a sleep study on has an abnormal sleep study once I know how to read them. And that means everybody who winds up in a neurologist's office that wasn't shot in the leg and injured a nerve has 
a sleep disorder. That means their ability to heal their body and have a normal functioning of their nervous system is actually in the background linked to their sleep. Mm. That's a totally different way of looking at this. And what that does is it gives you a second modality to treat. So I can use these medicines for headache or I can use medicines for tremor, but I can also start to say, can I make their sleep better? And at the time, what I had was CPAP devices and sleeping pills. At the time, I didn't know anything about sleep dentistry or oral appliances or mouth taping. That stuff wasn't, is just was beginning, but I didn't know about it. So I did five years of that. And by the end of those five years, I was really doing sleep studies and anyone who had let me and trying to get their sleep better. And importantly, even though we tend to um, vilify sleeping pills, they actually are successful if you have an open mind about what you're doing with it. Okay. So if we don't have anything else to choose from and we find one that makes you feel better, not just be unconscious, but you actually wake up the next day and you feel more rested, then I de definitely got more success with the headache people. So that's how I entered it. And then by a series of weird accidents, I wound up <clears throat> with about five years into it, the sleep study of an 18 year old who was otherwise perfect, had daily headache, I given her the medicine for that and she was doing better, but she was very tired. And she had a sleep study that showed she had no deep sleep. She slept for 10 hours. So as far as she was concerned, there was no reason to come in and say, my sleep is terrible. But what she said was, I feel terrible every day. I sleep, but I'm really tired. And her sleep study showed that she tried to get into deep sleep. 35 times an hour, she would wake to light sleep. And there was no deep sleep reported. So she was completely unable to do any deep sleep. And by now, I've got five years of saying, you know, we may not know what we do in deep sleep, but I can promise you that everybody who has a neurologic illness or a complaint doesn't have the right amount of deep sleep. So even if you're sleeping, that's not the whole answer. So then the question is, why don't they have any deep sleep? And what can we do about that? And the gal with the no deep sleep turned out to have a B12 deficiency. Mm. At the time, I was also reading these very weird articles that are looking at sleep as a single cell, which is a weird concept. So I also was wondering, gee, where is this happening in the brain? And is it possible that when Chuck told me that the reason why my patients had REM-related apnea was because he said, well, we get the most paralyzed of all in REM. And I said, whoa, that's creepy. We get paralyzed. Ooh, that scares me. And so I went about looking at the anatomy of where we get paralyzed. Well, this isn't a brainstem. This is a neurology problem. So there's something happening in this brainstem area that makes us paralyzed. Like the first question would be, what? Why do we get paralyzed? That sounds very vulnerable. And could that mean I could stop breathing when I got paralyzed? Well, yeah. And in fact, this part gets paralyzed only in REM. So he was referring to that and the anatomy of that, that sleep nucleus is distributed in three groups, the head and neck, the diaphragm and the chest wall and the rest. That means you can selectively paralyze them to a certain amount, okay? So you can paralyze everything but the diaphragm and the chest wall, which is handy, you know? And that also means that if you get too paralyzed in the chest wall and diaphragm, you have central apnea. That means the people who have 
sleep apnea and central apnea, it's all coming out of the same nucleus in the brainstem. This is not mysterious. And that means we can point to a single place in the brainstem. And then the other issue is, why did so many of these otherwise healthy 32-year-olds also have other pain? So they're seeing me for headache, but I've got ankle pain or knee pain or back pain. And I didn't have any pain anywhere when I was 32. And I don't think they should. And nobody's really talking about the fact that they have these leg movements. And if, they're, if they've got two problems, they get too paralyzed and this closes up and they have apnea and they are moving their legs, those could both be coming from the same nucleus. So I'm reading about these studies done with this little hair-like electrode into a single pacemaker dopaminergic cell in the brainstem that is about how we get paralyzed or the timing. And the guy is dropping these neurotransmitters on. He's saying, oh, it gets faster with acetylcholine. Oh, it gets slower with norepinephrine. Oh, it gets faster with epinephrine. And I'm thinking, this guy's changing the firing rate of this cell it keeps firing the whole time. Since the day that it was formed in utero, it keeps firing at a certain rate. And that means that all of these firing rates, so this wobbling back and forth is really about firing rates. You fire a little too fast, you get a little too paralyzed, you fire a little. So that means that's how the neurotransmitters are transmitting a ratio of neurotransmitters into perfect paralysis or paralysis that's a little screwed up. So I'm thinking of sleep in this weird single cell way. And then this gal has B12 deficiency. So for the first time I'm thinking, wow, these cells, these pacemaker cells, they have to repair, they have to do all their metabolic demands. They have to repair their endoplasmic reticulum and make sure their mitochondria all in between the beats. So what if they're, getting more B12 deficient than the rest of the body. So I'm thinking about it in a very different way. Like what if this sleep disorder could be a deficiency state? That's the first unique idea. And it's a biochemical deficiency state. And I don't know anything about vitamins, but I walk out and I go to Google now because we, you know, that's what we're all using. And I type that in and it says B12 deficiency symptoms, fatigue, daily headache. And I'm like, I've never done a B12 level on a daily headache patient in my life. Well, it turns out that it's not written in the neurology literature that way. It's written under B12 deficiency. Headache is one of the listed. So as a group, medicine has turned away from looking at vitamin deficiency states as being my purvey. I mean, why? These are all the basic biochemistry of our body. So for the first time, I start to do B12 levels. One of my patients says, you know, my doctor did my D level and she gave me D and my wrist pain went away and I'm, I'm completely clued out. But I think, you know, they've got these pains. Maybe I'm doing blood anyway. I throw the D in there. Okay. So I'm doing Ds and B12s for four months. And then all these people who have a sleep study that I looked at, they have various neurologic illnesses. Most of them have headaches. And every single night I'm filling out these lab slips and the B12 is there in the really, really sick ones. But it's not the, the constant in the background. The constant in the background is everybody's D is low. And it's between August and December. It's right at the end of the summer. So if it had been January, I wouldn't have known what to make of it, but I'm still like, this is weird. Everybody's D is low, even though it's when, it, I mean, I know nothing about D. So just before a Christmas break, two guys come back. And the thing that was unique about them is their Ds were a little higher. They were using CPAP and 
two guys in one week tell me the same thing. I've been using this stupid CPAP device for a whole year. My headaches didn't go away. You promised me they would. But you sent me that note after we did that level, and you told me to take vitamin D. And I bought the vitamin D, and they're only taking 1,000 IUs, which, you know, I didn't know anything about it. So, so I'll take 1,000 IUs. And they both said, you know, in about three weeks, my sleep got better. My headaches went away. And I was like, whoa, that was in the background in every single one of these people. So I go into PubMed and just type in vitamin D and sleep. And at the time, there was not a single hit for those two search words. Um, so then was vitamin D and brain. And I get into the material of a guy named Walter Stump, who's been writing about vitamin D since 1979. So I started medical school in 1979. That means if this guy's belief system had been adopted and taught to us in medical school. So his point of view is there are vitamin D receptors all over the body. It is, the, it is a control hormone that allows you to control other hormones so that you can adjust multiple systems to what the seasons are. Anybody who moves away from the equator has to deal with no food, snow on the ground, they shouldn't be having their babies during the time that there's no food. So he actually puts together this very logical belief system, which says D controls our metabolism, i.e. the weight gain that bears have. Our, he doesn't say sleep because nobody's paying attention to sleep, but metabolism, fertility. And, and ultimately what happened was I called this guy up and I say, hey, you've been writing a lot about D and you have these, this amazing way of looking at it that I don't see in the other D experts quote unquote they're all still talking about bone and i just observed that all of my sleep disorder patients have low d's has anybody written about that and he said no but that makes perfect sense what i fell into was he actually had a report that was about vitamin d receptors in this actual nucleus that's called the nucleus reticularis pontus oralis caudalis like who even knows about that it's this very obscure nucleus that only somebody who's studying neuroanatomy We'll be looking at, but that's where I've been looking. That's where we get paralyzed. He actually has a paper that shows there are vitamin D receptors all over this nucleus. And duh, I'm sorry, hibernation. I mean, do we know that hibernation is about winter and food sources and having your babies? Because we all like know that bears go on the ground for it and have their babies. So his belief system was so logical and fit so well with so many other things. So then I start to think more about, well, could this mean that this vitamin D deficiency is why this same group of women have thyroid disease, why they have gallbladder disease, why they, uh-oh, why they miscarried after the second kid. He's already writing about fertility issues related to vitamin D. So this guy's writing 300 articles. And the really sad part is, He's, he's actually writing his articles before the epidemic happens. So he predicts that fertility is going to be a big problem when the D goes low. He actually has a lot of comments about um, mood disorders related to seasonal affective disorder and postpartum depression. He puts all the dots together and said, when this baby sucks up her vitamin D, her mood, and nobody pays any attention to him. And so he's got, you know, 30 years worth of writings and I fall into that and I think this is just too weird. Why is, why is this such a conflicted area of research in medicine? And it's only gotten worse in the last 
three years since COVID came. So D is very conflicted and mostly because the word vitamin was applied, okay? The history of how this stuff was first written about is extremely important. There's an article from 1921, November of 1921. That means when I found this article, it was October of last year. A hundred years ago, Alfred Hess is talking in front of a group about the fact that rickets is cured by putting little infants and toddlers out in the sun in New York City. And he shows that not only, it's really heart-wrenching because he says all sorts of things about, at the end, it's obvious that we have realized that plants can't live without sunlight, but we have ignored that for humans. And it's obvious that our children have suffered the most from this. So in this article, it's not a nutrient. It's never been a nutrient. He says in the first sentence, rickets is the most common nutrient-related disorder of children. So because medicine decided it was a nutrient, they were, they were damn sure going to say that it was a nutrient and they were going to find that nutrient. So when they did the studies in rats 20 years later and they found a different form of D that was growing in the mold that was on the rat food. So there's something unique about rats. They're nocturnal. They don't go out in the sun. They can still make D3, but their receptor for the D has to be able to use this other very old form of D that no animal makes for them to be able to avoid the sun and still live. Every animal on this planet uses D. It's one of the core chemicals that all of us need. We all make D3. And because everybody ignored all the literature, including they make bulbs that now emit UVB light. So they know the wavelength that's being emitted a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, that's described. And then 10 years after the D2 is discovered, they find a similar chemical. So there was no chemical to call D at the time. They then find the chemical in 1940 and then find a slightly different chemical 10 years later on the skin of pigs left in the sun. So there's this very odd history that still has D called a vitamin, which it's never been, never going to be. It's not a nutrient. But most animals get it by mouth because they lick their fur or preen their feathers and get the D from their fur. So we're unique in that we don't have that protective coating that most animals have. We absorb it directly. That's why we developed melanin. That melanin protects our skin. So there's a lot about the history that is really important about the way we've looked at it. Ultimately, it's really embarrassing that 80 years later, this is still being called a vitamin, even though people say things like, well, it's really a hormone. And then the next sentence is, even the experts, the next sentence is, it's a fat-soluble vitamin. No, it's not a fat-soluble vitamin. It's never been a fat-soluble vitamin. You could say estrogen was a fat-soluble vitamin. And you could say, when I eat salmon and I eat this female salmon's estrogen in the salmon meat, I'm taking that estrogen vitamin. No, I'm sorry, you're stealing another animal's estrogen. And you can eat raw liver and steal another animal's D, but that does not mean it's a nutrient. It was never meant 
to come from the food. So when we still are thinking that way, we run our clinical trials by the dose. Mm-hmm. And so, so that I, screws everything up. Go ahead. So, yeah, no, this is incredible. I, I feel bad cutting you off, but I just wanted to ask a question then pertaining to D because this is what you're saying is so crucial because I say that too. I say it's a fat soluble vitamin because that's, uh-huh. that's how I was trained. Um, now I feel like I've just misled everybody and you know, I have to go on Twitter and publicly announce that I was wrong about everything and I don't know anything. And Will Smith has to come punch me and then we have to yeah. move on with our lives. Right. Um, but if I'm hearing you right, then what you, it sounds like you're saying is that we can't get vitamin D from food. Like we thought we like, it's, it's led to believe like meat and egg yolks and these sorts of things have vitamin D. But what it sounds like you're saying is no vitamin D is made endogenously like a hormone would be like, it's a communication, um, compound. Are these vitamin D supplements giving us vitamin D? And if we're not getting the vitamin D from food, the food that we're taking that they say is in vitamin D, what is that food in fact doing to help us raise vitamin D levels? Great, great questions. Okay, so the first thing we have to do is move our brain towards hormone. Because when you move your brain towards hormone and I say, well, Eric, you tell me that you, uh, you feel really tired. Um, I think it's thyroid, okay? I'm your clinician. And uh, why don't you go down to CVS and buy yourself some thyroid hormone and I'll see you back in a year and we'll see how you're doing. Because that's the way D is being treated, okay? Lay people know that, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to test my level of of thyroid? And when you give me a dose, aren't you supposed to make sure that that dose is making my blood level get to a certain place? Because every single hormone has other hormones that interact. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's important is we have already stolen hormones from the human body and tried to improve by using them as a pharmaceutical. And as soon as we do that, we find out really important things. Like if I give you an injection of testosterone because the pharmaceutical companies, testosterone is dirt cheap, so they can't make any money. So that means they make up a monthly injection. And what, what, find, what they find is the testosterone goes up, it gets converted to estrogen. It's not a normal way of taking testosterone. That's why bioidentical is the code word for hormones now. So when you give testosterone in that way, men start to grow breasts and they start to cry all the time. And they are, there are clinical symptoms that they come and they report to their doctor. That's another thing. Every single hormone that physicians have gotten used to using has a set of physical symptoms that the doctor knows to ask about because the person can feel what's happening to them. This is not the way D D has been dealt with. So number one, endocrinology has completely sidestepped their responsibility for this chemical. This chemical runs the pituitary. So it moves the thyroid hormone. It moves the gonadotropin releasing hormone. It interacts with all the other hormones. That means if you're out there taking 5,000 and you don't know that your D level is now 100, your chemistry is totally different than it was five years ago. And sometimes in most of the population being so 
low, you may be taking 2,000 a day for eight years before something different happens to you. There's no way you're going to correlate it to the fact that you're still taking 2,000 a day and it's happening eight years later. Okay, so in the background, medicine has sidestepped its responsibility for this chemical. Now, that's a little dangerous because it's over the counter. But in the current, the current environment, the doctors are also being brainwashed to be to say D is not really doing anything for anyone, and that's because of the way the clinical trials are set up. So the the advantage is we as lay people can go and buy this. But we have to be educated about how hormones work and that we have to follow a blood level, not a dose. And you'll see many interviews, podcasts, and articles about really intelligent researchers who are giving dose recommendations. That is absolutely wrong. Every single human being needs a different dose. And if you start this supplementation regimen at a very deficient state, what's really happening is you take D and it gets sucked into every cell that's wanted it. And then you do your level again and you're cavalier about it like everybody is. They do it again in a year and it hasn't gone up. And then they say you don't absorb it. That's the answer everybody gets. Mm -hmm. That's wrong. It's absorbed. This is a core hormone of every animal on the planet. Insects, fish, we can absorb it. That's not the problem. The problem is that there are so many holes that this D is filling that when we do the blood level, the blood level is really what's left over. It's everything else got sucked up. So if you don't see an increase in your level, it means you're using that much every day. Wow. And in fact, if I can tell you that your sleep will get better at a D level of 60 to 80 and you want to get there, you have to make adjustments to arrive. So it, Dosing vitamin D is very complicated, and it took me several years to understand the stuff I just told you. I didn't understand this fat-soluble vitamin and what it had done to my brain until about two years ago. And I thought, wait, I just told you that bears hibernate and they gain weight. And it turns out that the D runs the microbiome. So the D supports the microbiome. When the D goes down or when the D goes up, you get a different microbiome and that microbiome runs your appetite. So it turns out that fat, acquiring fat for the winter is one of the things that D is doing. But if I told you that we make D in the summer and then we use it in the winter, you would flatten out those changes. So there would not be a summer D state where I'm applying all my calories to my muscles, where I'm sleeping only eight hours, where I'm more active. And I get more done and I have my babies then. And then the winter D-state. So if you're assuming a couple things, one, if they're saying things like fat people suck the D into their fat, which is the other claim that's all over the place, that would imply that my body has all this vitamin D, but I can't see it. My body can't access it. It's just stuck in the fat cells. I'm sorry, biology doesn't follow that, okay? Mm. It's, this is a hormone. It's a pivotal hormone. It does a million different things. It has all these effects on our genome expression. That means we're not going to sequester it in our fat and not be able to access it. That means this whole idea was, oh, every other hormone has a homeostatic middle, and it goes up and down a little bit, and there are other feedback loops that keep it in the middle. The D is the same, except 
What its specialty is, is I'm going to stay in this state in the summer and I'm going to stay in this state suppressing fertility and feeding off my fat in the winter. So it has a special responsibility. Now, when we go back for a moment and say, do I get it from my food? Well, if you eat raw liver, you can get it from food. But it really wasn't designed to get from food. At the beginning of this, when they said, look, you can put people out in the sun and rickets goes away, they then found that in Boston, they've got all this cod liver that's hanging around that they can't market because nobody wants it after they make salt cod and they start selling it because it's got vitamin D in it. And the whole idea of using it as a nutrient and a supplement from cod liver came about. And now, nowadays, people are still using cod liver. I think that's a really bad idea. Now, the next step is, the next question for all of us should be, if I'm biohacking and you tell me, I just took a hormone, put it in a pill, and I'm taking it as a pill, instead of going outdoors and getting it from the sun, is that the same? Is it the same to biohack with a pharmaceutical, which is what we've done? We took a hormone, we made it a pharmaceutical, and then we... We assume that we know everything, okay? And this is the biggest message that I'm going to give you this whole day. It turns out that it's not the same as being in the sun because there's a whole other literature about all these other wavelengths of light. So there's one point, which is it's not just UVB that's important for our health. There are infrared and multiple other wavelengths of light that you get not even sitting in the sun, just being outdoors, that not only manage your sleep, but they manage your health even deep into the tissue. So there's this body of literature about infrared penetrating low, deeper into the tissue. So just like, it's not that I'm against taking vitamin D because that's the only way we're gonna get out of this place. But what happened really was we already had a literature about being in the sun. We already had intelligent people saying, putting our children in, in brick buildings and leaving them there is a really dangerous thing. But we forgot that in the 1980s when the dermatologist said we can't be in the sun. So since the 1980s with the dermatology recommendations, sunscreen, computers, and now COVID, we are living indoors most of the time. What does that ultimately look like when we live our lives indoors? All the current diseases, sleep disorders, and developmentally for children in utero and in the first few years of life, when they don't sleep, they don't develop normally. And then there are several chemical things that result from the D is low in the mom. The D is supposed to actually set the environment for the bacteria that will develop the new microbiome for that infant. If you do not have enough D to favor the four healthy phyla, your infant has the wrong microbiome. And because mom's D is low, the baby's D is low, and we've been told not to put the baby in the sun, that means that child looks like a normal human, but they're not. They don't have an organ of the body called the microbiome. That has a huge array of effects. So not just D by itself, but it turns out that the microbiome not only makes endocannabinoids that allow for normal development of the nervous system of the child in utero and after, but the microbiome also makes the eight B vitamins. So the piece that you want is, what about the ADHD epidemic and autism, both of which going sky high over the same time frame as the sleep disorders and older physicians like me 
because we existed before this, you know, before about 1980, we didn't have a huge percentage with autoimmune disease in childhood. We didn't have ADHD. We didn't have frequent suicides. So I lived before and after. We have been handed an explanation for those epidemics. And it's not that that's wrong. It's just that the toxins in our environment and you do it wrong, you don't exercise, you're using electronic devices. I have limited ways to respond to that. I can't really keep my neighbor from using, uh, you know, Roundup. And it's frustrating and it's scary for me. But when my patient is sitting there in the room and I'm just saying, oh, it's a toxic environment and oh, you don't eat right and oh, you don't exercise and oh, you're on. Well, what if I had some other way to intervene? What if I had another path to follow? So I don't claim that all the other explanations we've been given for these epidemics are wrong. They're not wrong. It's just that I would like to have something to offer that we could do instead. And the major core of that is really going outdoors, spending more time outdoors. There's more and more literature about the multiple ways that affects us. Now, in the background, what happened to me was I started with D. I got big into what the dosing should be. The answer that Walter and I published in 2012 was a specific answer to a specific question. If everybody's D is low and they all have these abnormal sleep studies, is there a vitamin D level that my patients say makes their sleep better? Okay, and I didn't send them for another sleep study because by the time your sleep is better and you didn't have apnea anyway, they're not going to pay for another sleep study and the patient doesn't want one. And at the time, we had no sleep tracker. So what I had was what the patient says about how their sleep is. And humans can talk. They really do know how they feel in the morning. So that was a clinical report as a hypothesis using Walter's science and my patients, several thousand of my patients saying, you know, when my D gets over 60, I sleep better. And when it goes over 80, I sleep worse. And that is stay consistent. Now, to back up for a moment, because your population is interested in what's the ideal, okay? So the next question would be, does that mean a D level of 60 to 80 is the human ideal? I don't think that's the same question, okay? Because if you take the D levels of hunter-gatherers who have never lived in, even in a hut, they live outdoors, okay? We're saying the ideal is live outdoors close to the equator. That's our evolutionarily perfect state. And they haven't developed a sleep disorder yet. Their D levels are in the 40s and 50s, okay? And they always do a mean, all right? And our D levels, our ability to make D falls off as we get into our 60s and 70s, okay? So in the background, that's not really the same as saying if you want to be the maximum performer in your sport, you should have a D level of 65. I don't think that's really known yet. Mm -hmm. I think if you've had a sleep disorder, that means you've been sick long enough and it's never just D. I don't think people get any sort of illness from just having a D that's low. What I've seen is the D goes low, the microbiome goes away, and you have to have that for two or three years before the disease starts. And it's never just D alone. It's all the stuff that the microbiome is supplying. And I would claim that we know, you know, 5% about what it is that the microbiome has really been responsible for. For instance, one of the things that showed up in my practice eight or nine months after discovering that 
you have to take a B, a large dose B complex at the same time that the D is there. And that leads to this B vitamin soup. The Bs, the reason why we have eight things called B, I mean, that is weird, right? A was described, and then there are eight things called B, and then there's C and D and E. Why eight things called B? Because it turns out they all came from the same yeast bacterial mixture that we were using to make beer and bread. And they poured that in the Petri dish and they studied it. And every single one of these chemicals are bacterial growth factors. They were mm. all reported as bacterial growth factors before the name vitamin was ever coined for humans. Okay. So that means there's some logic to saying the bugs really make our B vitamins. So once doing that, I was going to get around to, there are multiple other things that are deficient in the person who's lost their microbiome. So about eight months after finding a way to bring the microbiome back to normal and the probiotics don't do it. We'll circle back to the prebiotics, but I was using, you know, I was spending 60 bucks a month on probiotics. It wasn't doing jack for me. Neither was it for anybody else. But eight months after reconstituting the bugs, I had several people who were doing iron infusions. That's another mm. thing you never saw. No, we didn't have iron infusions when I was in medical school, particularly not in males who don't menstruate. Like, why would their iron be low? And why is the hematologist just saying, oh, you can't absorb iron? I'm like, well, why is that? That doesn't make any sense. Then about eight months after, I got two or three people in over a three-month span to come back and say, hey, I went to get my iron infusion last week and they wouldn't give it to me. And I say, well, are you even taking oral iron? No. Well, that's weird. Did they have an explanation for why your iron went up? No. That suggests that all these other things that we're measuring, your copper is low, your zinc is low, your iodine is low, your iron is low, probably were being run by an organ of the body because there aren't the animals out there are not going to, you know, GNC or wherever and buying zinc supplements. That suggests that these little charged ions that we're calling minerals have always had a mechanism for being absorbed from the GI tract. And it was probably the bugs doing it all along. And not only that, absorbing it, but having a two-way conversation so that they don't absorb too much. That idea that there's a two-way conversation between the bugs and our body is something that 10 years ago would have been laughed out of the room, okay? Now we don't think that's weird, but that probably also means that some people get mercury fillings and get mercury that's too high, other people have mercury fillings and their bugs are able to get rid of extra mercury. So that there's a, a role for this microbiome. Once you say that and then you say, wow, could that mean that all the little kids who are going to get inoculated have immunizations? And by the way, those immunizations were great in my generation. There were generation before me and the generation after me. And we have long history of immunizations doing great things for humans, but I'm about to give immunizations to humans that look like humans, but they don't really have a normal immune system because they don't have the normal microbiome. Could that mean that their reaction to those immunizations would be different? Yeah, that's what it means. So it's an organ of the body that we can't really see that we're not thinking of in that way, but this is not a normal human. So that person gets COVID and then gets diabetes. So all the things you're seeing happen to kids after yeah. either immunizations or getting COVID, they're all about not having a normal immune system, which is 
the core, the one of the most important parts of having the normal microbiome. So can I ask you then, because you're bringing up um, minerals, which I think is interesting because I've had a few mineral people on here talking about minerals um, and they're actually very anti-supplementing with vitamin D um, because of the interplay so much of other minerals, specifically like magnesium, calcium. So, so, so thinking like in the way that you just said where, Hey, vitamin D, it's not a vitamin, it's a hormone. How is that playing then with, um, with those minerals? And if somebody is supplementing with magnesium, like for instance, um, I read the book years ago, the magnesium miracle. And this woman is all about high dose magnesium. I think she even has her own magnesium. She sells. And I jumped all on the magnesium train. I was going not high dose with somebody would call like a biohacker would call high dose, but like 500 milligrams, 600 milligrams a day, which is pretty decent. Um, and I took a, 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 a an organic acids test and I found my, uh, I'm sorry, I took a hair mineral test and I found that my magnesium, even though despite the supplementation was still very low. Well, yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering then we're talking about absorption and we're talking about minerals. Minerals, how do these all play together then from your perspective? They're right and I'm right. That's one of the weird things about this. If you can hold more than one belief system in your head at a time, mm-hmm. then you can start to understand this a little more depth. So when you start taking more D, it, it does want more magnesium. Okay. When you start taking more D, it also wants more Bs. And in the background, if you take D and you start to have headaches, not you have headaches now, but you start to have headaches or cramps, It's speaking to that, okay? You need to add more magnesium. Also, it turns out that magnesium helps our sleep and it helps us poop normally. And that's what a lot of people are using it for. But also, if you aren't depleted in magnesium, when you start to take magnesium, you might actually get leg cramps from it because that's what happened mm-hmm. to me originally. That's what happened to me so, too, yeah. Yeah, so, and there, and there is a difference between some of the different kinds of magnesium. And I'm not an expert in that. But the thing that's interesting to me in the background was the program that I put together kind of by accident actually has a multivitamin with a very specific low dose Bs and all these minerals, not all of them, but most of them in the multivitamin. So even though I understand that you guys are very much about a specific kind of vitamin formulation, et cetera. Remember that I am treating people who are interested in allopathic medicine, okay? They don't even know what allopathic means. They're just going to their doctor. They're on four pills. They're seeing a neurologist. So they aren't seeking an alternative form of medicine. They are doing routine medicine. And I'm trying to convince them, by the time I get this part figured out about the microbiome, to take two or three pills of D a B50, a multivitamin, and if their B12 is low, a B12. That means they got an additional four to eight pills they're taking. And I have to make it cheap and easy. So I'm not, I don't believe in making my own form of vitamins, okay? I don't want them to feel like I'm benefiting financially from what they're taking. I want them to believe what happens to their body is better, okay? So I'm giving recommendations, but I'm giving it in a very different environment to most of the people who are seeking out your podcast, okay? Also, it's important to note that in the background, there is a history. I'm I'm getting to why is it that there's this whole literature about my vitamin formulation is better, that you'll absorb it better, okay? There is an actual literature behind that. 
And I never had anybody say that they were pooping out the pills the same way they took them, okay? So I didn't really worry about absorption. But remember, I started with D. D runs the stomach acid. D goes to the gastrin cells and tells the stomach how much acid to secrete. And it also has receptors in both sphincters. That means the people who get reflux actually have less acid in their stomach and it's right. up in the esophagus where it's not supposed to be. And they are at increased risk of H. pylori because we now know that H. pylori only survives when the stomach isn't acting normally, i.e. the pH is closer to seven than it is two. So in a state where the stomach is normal, humans can eat raw meat and dissolve it. That is the way we were originally put together. So saying I can't dissolve a pill because it's formulated wrong doesn't make sense in an evolutionary viewpoint. Now, is that still happening? Oh, yeah. So there's a whole body of literature out of the, the bariatric surgery where the patients that I would see for encephalopathy after they had their gastric bypass would have told their doctors, I'm pooping out these five vitamins you've given me because they've tested them and they're all vitamin deficient. And they're pooping them into the toilet and they look the same. And I would claim that that's because they didn't have any stomach acid to begin with. They're obese because their D is profoundly low and has been for 20 years. So they wind up with a bariatric surgeon for that reason. In my experience, once you get the right microbiome back, I have not had anybody that's had a hard time absorbing vitamins even the ones that are coming from CVS and Walgreens. My focus, so that's my personal experience. That doesn't mean that everybody else is wrong. My personal focus has been more on you as a layperson have to learn the doses of these B vitamins because the next thing we're going to talk about is B5, which has been completely overlooked, and pantothenic acid, which turns out to be deficient in most of us because the microbiome is the only source. It is not in any food. B5 becomes coenzyme A becomes acetylcholine. So when we talk about what you're trying to do, which is to maximize the function of my brain so I can not only feel better and do better today, but have a lower risk of Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's as I get older, acetylcholine is the core of all of that. So here's what happened. You want to ask about that or should I uh, go for it? No, 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 please okay. go for it. Yeah. All right. So here's what happens to me. And I want to tell you a misstep and a bad outcome at the beginning, because that's what colored my ability to see this. So I'm doing vitamin D. We get really good at it. Everybody's better. They're not fixed, but they're better. At the end of two years, I'm starting to sleep not as well. I've got this weird buttock pain where I can't sit down at the end of the day. My patients are coming in saying, you know, I can't do you for daily headache. Now my joints hurt. And then I have two gals who come in within a month of each other who are both complaining of burning in their hands and feet. My subspecialty in neurology is neuropathy. And I've been practicing for 25 years. Burning in the hands and feet is just not a common thing. Burning in the feet, yeah, we've been said it, we've been told it's diabetes, but these two are already on B12. So the only time I had seen burning get better was with B12, but they're already on B12. So I'm feeling very uncomfortable because it has a B vitamin ring to it. I don't really know very much about the B vitamins. I'm not very knowledgeable about vitamins in general. 
But I'm getting the feeling that this D is having other effects that are, it just doesn't make sense to me that these gals can have this symptom, two, just two of them a month apart, and all they have in common is they've been taking two years of D with me. Their diets haven't changed. Why would they have something that's a B vitamin deficiency state when they haven't changed their diet if the bees come from the food? So a gal walks in the door with a book that I, of course, didn't want to read because it was about B vitamins, but it was about the, the healing powers of pantothenic acid, the, the pain-free promise of pantothenic acid. So I finally read it. And the reason why she brought it to me was because the references the early use of pantothenic acid blockers and investigating pantothenic acid was in the 1950s. So in the 1950s, they have this creepy little lab next to the Iowa State Prison where they're doing all these experiments on convicts and they're studying B5 and B6. This is a very early study of the vitamins. And they block B5 and they show that in two, way, two weeks, they are have four things. And these are not big studies, but... They can't walk right. They have a puppet-like gait. Their belly hurts. They can't sleep. And they have burning in their hands and feet. And this mm -hmm. is two weeks of a blocker. Now, this is a vitamin that when you look it up, it says there is no panathenic acid deficiency because it's in every food. That's what it says in every single reference. But if you go back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there is lots of science that shows that that's not true. Okay, so that was an assumption made because coenzyme A is in every food, but it really turns out that it is only certain species of bacteria that make B5, and they are our only supply of B5, and the epidemic of D leading to the wrong microbiome hasn't happened yet. So at the time that medicine claims, if you have a good diet, you don't need vitamins, that's like in the 70s early 80s, that was probably true for most of the population. But once we go indoors, it turns out there's this odd connection between D actually is a, is a growth factor to all of our healthy microbiome. That was first published in 2020. So that was an assumption I made because all of these things show up at the same time, but we really didn't have literature to substantiate it. And one of the reasons why we haven't been able to grow these microbiome bugs in the petri dish is we didn't have an added d as a growth factor because we didn't mm. recognize it as such okay so we have all these dna footprints of those species but we don't actually have what it, how do they behave in a petri dish now having said all that where we get to is i'm sitting with a bunch of people who are kind of yelling at me saying how come my joints hurt is it this vitamin D? And I don't know, and I'm feeling very uncomfortable, and my sleep is worse, and my butt hurts, and this gal brings me this book. So I say, okay, I'm desperate. I'll go in and buy panathenic acid. So I go down to the drug emporium, and I find panathenic acid sitting on the shelf there in 400 milligram tablets. That's the way it's usually marketed. That's what it says in the book, okay? So as I'm standing there, I'm thinking, you know, the only thing I remember from medical school is if you give one B, you should give all of them. I have no idea why, okay? And then I look at all the B complex and they're a disaster. Each one of them has eight or two or three. They, they all say B complex, but there's no clear pattern. And how am I supposed to recommend this? And I've already seen that D is very unpredictable and most of the literature about how to dose it and what to look for is wrong. So now I'm stuck with eight chemicals. I don't know what dose. And so I pick up B100 
And B100 is a non-proprietary mix of 100 milligrams or 100 micrograms of each of the Bs. So it has 100 of riboflavin, 100 of thiamine. It always has 400 of folate for reasons I do not understand. I pick that up, not because I'm smart, but because I'm looking for something that I can say, okay, now take this also. And I go home and I start taking 400 milligrams plus the 100 that's in there. And I give for one week only the recommendation, okay, everybody who's got joint pain or burning pain and a sleep study and a D that's now in the 60s, I want you guys to add this to what you're doing. 400 milligrams of panathenic acid and B100. And by the end of that week, I realized I have restless legs all day, all day long. And it used to be just in the evening. But that means my sleep is worse and I'm having my sleep disorder getting worse, which immediately says, oh, there's a dose effect of this too. And nobody's referred to that. And what the heck? And my patients are going to come back and yell at me. So I stopped the 400 milligrams of panathenic acid. And in a day, my butt pain is gone. Mm. In a day. Very, very weird. Mm. So then over the next three months, my patients start to trickle back. So this is the misstep that turns out to be very important. Most of them said, this stuff, the 400 milligrams, nearly killed me. Mm -hmm. I got so revved up, anxious, nervous that I only took it for two days. I couldn't sleep at all. 30 of them using the same phrasing. Now, what is different? Why would this woman write this book about 400 patients with rheumatoid arthritis? She has rheumatoid arthritis. What would be different about them? Because my patients are clearly very different than that. It's acting like D and whatever's in this stuff, probably B5. Remember, I'm giving a B100. The B5 and the D appear to be synergistic in some way. Anything that can make you wired and not able to sleep, it means it's a player in sleep, okay? That means likely it can make you better, but there's a dose effect. You have to get it just right. Now, what I did was stop the 400 milligrams and the B100. I felt great, okay? Several of those people said, I stopped this 400. I stayed on B100 and my pain went away in a day. It was so weird. I was like, that's what happened to me. What do you think is going on? It didn't make any sense to me. I also didn't have a good explanation. What was in this book was B5 becomes coenzyme A that makes cortisol. Mm -hmm. That's the major connection that induced all sorts of clinical trials back in the 50s, 60s, 70s in autoimmune disease. Okay, so B5 absolutely is responsible for making cortisol. Now, does, if you connect the dots real quick there, if I lose my microbiome and I lose my B5, that means my cortisol levels are not right in the background, okay? But in my experience, this reaction, I took it and within an hour, I'm all buzzed up and I couldn't sleep at all. That's not cortisol. That's some other neurotransmitter because that's like my drugs, like the things you talked about in the beginning, like the stimulants, like things that give me better attention, all of those drugs make you go a little too high and you get a different effect. You get distractible and all screwed up. If you get it just right, you're like, yeah, I'm efficient. I can be distracted and come right back. So whatever this stuff is doing, it's making people be able to concentrate and function better when they get the dose perfect. Now, the question is, what's the right dose? Okay, if all the literature says, 
400 milligrams and that's what's sitting on the shelf. And that is clearly not what my patients need. What's the right dose? And where I ended up was if these review articles about the B vitamins say riboflavin has a poop bacteria source and a food source, thiamine, poop bacteria. Well, what if the natural source for all animals is really the poop bacteria? And why didn't they come back? Because when I gave D, it did not clear up the IBS. I thought it would, but it didn't. Okay, so the IBS didn't go away. And then I'm left thinking, well, what do those guys want down there anyway? You know, I gave them D. I thought that was a cofactor they were lacking. And at this point, I've got several 50 or 60 people on a combination of D and B100. And then I think, you know, the other thing I'm reading is that we have these four phyla. What if there had been a symbiotic foursome that supply each other with bees? They don't know about us. They don't care about us. They're just trading these bees. And all of these chemicals are part of the metabolism of bacteria. Could that mean I've just given them the growth factors that they needed? And they used to trade them with their buddy that's now piles of poop away. Mm -hmm. And so I've just flooded their GI tract with a bee soup and the D that kind of suggests that they're going to grow back. But what's going to happen when they do? Because I just lived through several people firing me for getting agitated. And in a, what if the bugs come back and make the normal dose of all eight and they're still on my B100? What's going to happen to them? They're all going to get pain and sleeplessness again, which is exactly what happened. So I stayed on that combination for four and a half months. And by the middle of the fourth, you know, after the fourth month, I started to wake up stiff. My sleep started getting bad again. So it turns out all you really need to give those guys is enough D, a D over 40 and B50. And B100 is what we all took and we did well on it. But it turns out we've been depleting our B vitamin stores, which there are B vitamin stores. All of this literature that suggests that we pee out the excess and there's no stores, that is incorrect. And that is well-documented. So we know that we have stores of B1, B5, B6, vitamin C. So probably there are stores of other Bs as well. So this whole concept that we can just generalize what we saw with B12 shots. as so you can give a shot once a month. And by the way, it was given once a month because Medicare paid for it once a month, not because that is the correct biochemistry of B12, but... Stepping back a minute, then we had to stop the B100 after three months. So in my, I now have then a website with a program that gives you this general belief system, but also tells you the path to follow to do it. Mm -hmm. And in the background, what's happened since is it becomes clear after you look at some of the literature that one, when D hits its receptor in that little nucleus I was telling you about the brainstem, the thing that it makes is choline, is choline acetyltransferase is the final enzyme that makes acetylcholine. So not only do we have articles that show that there are vitamin D receptors, but we know exactly what it makes. And it turns out that B5 becomes coenzyme A that is necessary for that enzyme to make acetylcholine. So once that choline acetyltransferase is made and stored in the brainstem cells, it goes looking for coenzyme A, which is the acetyl group donor, and choline. And as soon as you add that in someone who has now has 
a lot of that enzyme. They have a different reaction because it is indeed synergistic between the two. The two B5 and choline and this enzyme are needed to make acetylcholine. And as a final parenthetical point to bring it around to what you do, at the time, I really didn't know what acetylcholine did in the brain. I knew that it was low in Alzheimer's, but over the last 10 or 15 years, there are now a whole rash of cholinergic disorders that are cholinergic deficiency states. One of them that's very common is your parasympathetic nervous system runs on acetylcholine. So a lot of those women who were seeing me for daily headache were sitting on the examining table with a heart rate of 110 because they're in sympathetic overdrive all the time. Right. Our explanation of that has been the same thing. You, you know, oxygen drops at night, sleep disorder. But ultimately, what I arrive at is, well, what if your bugs get pooped out and that means you lose this neurotransmitter? You have a sympathetic that's still making epinephrine and norepinephrine, but your acetylcholine supply is really low. So you see sympathetic overdrive because the parasympathetic doesn't really have its juice. And then you start getting more deeply into does autism seem to have an acetylcholine deficiency state? Yes, they now are doing nicotine patches because nicotine is the only drug we have that's an acetylcholine agonist. It's the only one we still have. So in the background, the things that you're trying to biohack with we're trying to fill a deficiency state. The natural chemical is acetylcholine. Mm -hmm. And the brain wants a very specific dose of that. You can do that by getting your B5 and all the other Bs. Keep in mind that even though we talk about B5 going to acetylcholine, thiamine is also pivotal in making both dopamine and acetylcholine. All of these eight are so intertwined mm -hmm. that I really feel like most people need to take all eight together. That one thing I remembered from medical school turns out to be pivotal. Our biology, the bacteria's biology, is all about these eight chemicals always came as an eight pack. So you can actually biopack. So and there, we can get into it in a different uh, separate interview if you want to go deeper. But there are really interesting studies showing things like the amyloid plaques that we've said are causing Alzheimer's disease. There's a really smart guy named Dara Sori who's sending out some amazing research out of Sweden. It says, really, uh, by accident, we discovered that those amyloid fibrils are actually binding to the choline acetyltransferase to try to make more acetylcholine because the first state is that the acetylcholine is low. And these amyloid fibrils increase the effectiveness of this enzyme. It's the cell's desire to make more acetylcholine. That turns all of our thinking about Alzheimer's disease on its head. It suggests that there's an acetylcholine deficiency state first. And these things that we see with the plaques and tangles are a reaction to that. Mm -hmm. Parkinson's disease, the same. There are all sorts of imaging devices now that can show us that the first stages of Parkinson's before the dopamine deficiency starts are acetylcholine deficiency states. And if you do a sleep study in that phase, so it's in their early 60s when they're retiring, they have a sleep disorder. By the time they have a tremor and look stooped and look Parkinsonian, they now have both acetylcholine and dopamine deficiency. And there are numerous other things that connect these inflammatory states in the immune system. So there's another thing called the acetylcholine anti-inflammatory 
pathway that's actually, and this isn't brief, this is a lot of information quickly, but it's to introduce the fact that this acetylcholine deficiency state tree has been in the background for the last 40 years. We missed it. The concept that you could have the wrong microbiome and lose one of your neurotransmitters. That's one of the pivotal parts of our nervous system. No one's even thought of that. I still find it very, very weird. So there's an anti-inflammatory system that is a separate system that's from stimulating the vagus nerve. They found this when they were using vagal nerve stimulation for, for seizure control. And what they noticed was the spleen got a message from the vagus that sent out T cells and the T cells go throughout the tissues and they secrete choline acetyltransferase. They're not, it's making acetylcholine, but not in nerve cells. It's acting like a hormone, not a neurotransmitter. They aren't nerve cells. And then they go out there and now they're looking for coenzyme A and choline and they make acetylcholine and that affects our level of inflammation. So not only is this involved in our autoimmune disease, but it's involved in things like allergy, asthma, eczema, all these weird things that started to show up when I was using these bees that I kept thinking, what is this? Why? I don't understand how these are connected. So over the last 10 years, there have been multiple articles that have helped substantiate and give answers to these odd things that I saw in my patients that at the time, I really wasn't putting acetylcholine in my my calculations. I really didn't know what acetylcholine was doing in the brain because we had no drugs. Yeah. What I realized was I'm looking at this Google, like I put in coenzyme A in the brain and it says it makes acetylcholine. And then I go, okay, acetylcholine in the brain. Acetylcholine manages our level of alertness during the day. So the frontal lobe nicotinic receptor acetylcholine in the frontal lobes establishes our ability to pay attention, get distracted and come right back. That means it's an acetylcholine tone, more or less, that allows us to be directed. Same thing for sleep. So it says acetylcholine manages our level of alertness during the day and it manages our sleep and our ability to get paralyzed at night. And I'm like, what? How come I don't know this? So acetylcholine, interesting because one of the most popular nootropics I mean, some of the most popular nootropics are uh, acetylcholine. Uh, you got me saying it now like that. Uh, I used to say acetylcholine. I, it's okay. Either way, uh, it's okay. Acetylcholine, um, acetylcholine precursors. So like yes. um, alpha-GPC, CDP-choline, and then of course all the racetams are cholinergic um, in nature. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting now because now you got me thinking about this whole thing in terms of not just, hey, I want to take because I, I don't take these things, but I know they're very popular and I am actually interested in taking them, but not just thinking about, hey, I want to take this because I got to study for a test or, hey, I want to take this because I got a project, but hey, I want to take alpha GPC because it'll help me sleep better at night. It'll lower my daytime stress and it'll do all these other background things that I'm doing all this other stuff for, of course, in combination with like getting sunlight and, you know, get it, make sure I'm getting an adequate amount of B vitamins and that sort of thing. Yeah. So the final connector to all of this is you, you have to live outside. We were all animals that lived outside. When we moved indoors, we lost our microbiome. There's a way to get it back. It's pretty simple. You have to have a combination of D and B50 for three months. And then after that, each person has their own set of deficiencies in the background. So biohacking with other things are is not wrong. And you, I, my belief system is I want to have a parameter that I can measure. Okay, I have X thing that I don't like, 
for me, mostly it's sleep, pardon me, but there are also pain and other things and daily headache. I want a parameter that I can say, I added this supplement and it made it better or it didn't. And I want a time frame in which to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't really believe that we should just take supplements with the concept that, oh, supplements are good for you. I, I don't think they're good for us. I think we have to be aware of, are there physical symptoms or other findings that would help me know whether or not I'm deficient in this? And then once my body is no longer deficient, what's the message that I get back? Because interestingly, what will often happen then, two years after getting the microbiome back is, uh uh-oh, the person's coming back and saying, I have terrible diarrhea. And I'm like, well, are you still on magnesium? Yeah. So then you have to take it away because your Mm -hmm. body is telling you, I don't need that extra anymore. So having that conceptual framework just makes you look at every single one of these things. Drugs are no different than supplements. They're chemicals that are active in your body. Therefore, you should be using them if they have a good outcome, but not using them if they don't. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a great place to wrap because I think that is really, that really summarizes not just what this podcast is about, but just everything I believe in when it comes to nutrition and supplementation. You know, I always say at the end of the day, our bodies are just, we're just chemistry labs. And, you know, every day we eat, we, we add a reactant to that every day. We breathe in oxygen, we breathe out CO2, you know, we're coming in contact with weird chemicals in many different ways, shapes, and forms. And now that we're taking the supplements that we are, especially in the last 20, 30 years, with just the way that the wellness industry has exploded, um, you're right. We shouldn't be looking at these like, I'm just going to take these supplements and see what happens. You know, Um, we should be taking them with the pharmaceutical approach of, hey, take this for X amount of time, come back, reevaluate, see what happens, and then adjust from there. So I think that's a great message. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for yeah, this was me. This was incredible, um, Dr. Sasha. I really appreciate it. I'm, I, I have no chance, no choice but to have you back for another one because I feel like you in the last 10 minutes, we just got into a whole other suite of topics that I want to yeah. dive another hour into, the acetylcholine, okay. all that stuff. But um, I know we have a hard out. I'll bring slides for that. Because it's a lot easier when you see the chemical formulas and stuff. Yeah. And there's one other really interesting thing we'll do when we come back. There's a guy named Slominski who is just brilliant. He's working in Alabama in a dermatology department. And he's showing that there are multiple active forms of D made on the skin when we're out in the sun. They're not equivalent to what we're taking orally. There's an array, like a rainbow of different Mm -hmm. kinds of active D. So the question in the background is, should I be uh, exploring how I do with my sleep and my body when I'm outside? Absolutely. It's really probably not the same as taking B. It's not wrong to take D, but there there are other things we're still missing when when we biohack with the pharmaceutical. Yeah. And the whole infrared light thing with the different, you know, wavelengths of the sun. I mean, this is, this just is endless. So, um, yeah, yeah, so much, so much more to discuss, but I I certainly appreciate it. I I know that I'm going to listen to this again with a notepad and take some notes here. Um, but I think anybody who's listening PowerPoints to go with it. Yeah. If you can send me some links to these different sure. um, studies you're talking about too, because I know we have some real, you know, nerds in the audience who would love to just dive into that stuff too. And sure. um, I, again, I certainly appreciate this. This was awesome. Um, anybody listening to this definitely learned a lot. Um, if somebody would love, would like to learn more about you, follow your work online, check out your website, check out your social media, any of, uh, you know, visual media stuff you have, where could somebody go do that? Uh, www.drnoperiod.drgomenac.com. 
Awesome. I will put that in the show notes and the uh, podcast description in all the players that it plays in. And um, we will have all your contact links in there as well. Dr. Gomenak, thank you again so much for joining me today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Listener, viewer, if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to give it a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the podcast. And if you're new to the podcast, take a few moments, a few hours, binge through some old Holistic Nootropics podcast episodes. And until next time, peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain-boosting info, in-depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.